And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. The Athletic. Yamaha has finally solved a problem it's been trying to solve for years, but it's got a new problem. Ducati might be moving the goalposts yet again, and there's radical, slightly desperate-looking things going on at Honda in a slightly retro way as well which we quite liked. This is the Race MotoGP podcast. We're coming to you at the end of Test 1. Simon Patterson is in Kuala Lumpur, literally as we record this, fresh from the Rider Debriefs. Valentin Hurunchi is in his new flat with exciting neon kitchen lights. And uh, I'm just uh, trying to get a podcast recorded before my baby son wakes up. This is your stand-in host, Matt Beer, in uh, winter testing, Stefan Braddle mode again. So let's get straight to it. Again, like I say, we're on the clock before my son wakes up. Um, the most attention-grabbing thing from this test for me was the picture that emerged on Sunday morning European time of a very old-school-looking Honda with no wings on it whatsoever. Now, from a, a, at a glance, this looked like an absolutely desperate indictment of Honda's aero why would they be taking it all off if any of it was any good basically but Simon can you explain to listeners what was going on with that uh so Mark Marquez give us a on the surface rather convincing excuse but honestly whatever you read into it the, the, it's a bit vacuous um we know that Honda's got a new technical director for the uh, following the, the winter break they've replaced longtime stalwart Takeo Yokoyama with former Suzuki technical director Ken Koichi and Marquez's uh, explanation was essentially that in order for, for Koichi to better understand the Honda, they stripped all the arrow off and then added it back a piece at a time to try and help uh, gather some data of the bike in all its various stages. Now, considering your arrow package should be a combined thing and not you know individual elements that you pull together, that doesn't really cut it for me as an explanation. Um, and it makes me, you know, this is... This is not, it wouldn't be the first time that we've seen Honda turn up to the start of a season with an aero package that was fundamentally damaging them. Uh, if you remember back at the start of the 2020 season, they had an absolutely abysmal time all the way through winter testing until the final night in Qatar when Marquez finally convinced them to go back to the previous year's aero and suddenly he was fast again. Um, my gut feeling is that we're in a sort of a similar situation. Now, given what we know about the Japanese factories anyway being a bit behind the curve when it comes to aero. Um, yeah, I can't really see another reason for doing something so incredibly radical. I remember that Qatar test very well and, and the, 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 the madness that was ensuing as Honda was swapping packages constantly and, and Marquez was trying so many different combinations on the bike before settling on basically going back to an old spec and of course it didn't bode well for his 2020 season that turned out to be very brief when it eventually began but they never at that point they never got to the stage of let's just take every single piece of aero off again I thought it was quite telling that when you asked Mark about that at the end of the at the end of the test he basically said oh did you did you notice that I was hoping no one would That's, it's just not a good sign is it well, yeah, they, they did it at the hottest part of the day, you know, with the sort of intention of, I think, maybe 
being missed. It was only on for two laps. Um, thankfully, uh, Motorsprints Luca Guarini managed to be on track at the time and got some photographs of it. And there's also some photographs from our own photographers, some uh, Gareth Harford from Golden Goose, of Stefan Bradle doing something similar. Uh, which also kind of begs the question of when you've got Bradle here, why would you send Marquez out to do it? Very true. That's that's not the point of a test rider or of a, you know, that's the point of a test rider. It's not the point of a six-time world champion. So there is more to this than, than meets the eye. I'd, I'd like to talk, obviously, a bit more about everything that happened with Honda during the during the test. But what, what did you guys think of the picture of a, a MotoGP bike with no aero on it? I was surprised how outdated it looked. You straight away said how cool it looked. I, I'm, I can't make my mind up, Val. What do you think? Yeah, you in that case is Simon, because I, I didn't find it too cool. It looked small and weird. That's not <laughs> to say, you know, that's not to say the, the winglet monstrosities look good. Far from it. It's just that also just, I guess our brains are so warped at this yeah. point that it just, there's something about it that just looks off. Like a, I don't know, a face with one side copied over to the other, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> just doesn't look right. I mean, I, I, I like it. I, I like what when race bikes look like that and I hate the horrible monstrosities we've got right now, if I'm being honest. So yeah, I'm all in favor of it, you know, ban them all. I think I'm very much, very much on, on Val's side with this because straight away I thought that does look nicer but like you say your brain has now got so in tune with MotoGP bikes having so many things protruding from there it did look incredibly basic and it looked like something from the past and how, yeah, how many years is it we've actually had Aero it's, it's barely half a decade is it or maybe a little bit more than that y- now yeah, yeah it was kind of like a 20, 2016 yeah. that Ducati really exploded it and yeah it's just become yeah, it's just become that. That's what a MotoGP bike looks like. It's got pointy bits all over it more than ever. That going into going into this season. So, yeah, very, a very like a, like an optical illusion. A very strange feeling seeing that. So, aside from taking all its wings off, what else was going on with Honda this week? And was much of it any good? So Honda bought like four different bikes for Mark Marquez, and he spent all weekend eliminating them one at a time until he was left with the one that felt the most like the one that he rode in Valencia. Uh, the pre at the postseason test there, which is really a rather damning indictment of Honda's three months of work back in Japan. Yeah, he, did, yeah. he didn't like that one, um, did he? So. It, it sounds like they're still very much lost. That this was not the happy, successful test that uh, that they wanted it to be. Now we'll, we'll we'll have plenty of of occasion to talk about Mark in the coming days and weeks, but I think the interpretation that is most tempting is. He didn't have anything nice to say, so he didn't really say anything at all. That's that's basically what it sounded like. He was not as outright negative as he was in Valencia. And even in Valencia, he was a bit measured, but he was more more flat out. But it doesn't sound like much of anything has changed since since Valencia. And we, we don't really know what he can do with that bike at, at, at the optimum because I don't think I don't think we've seen like the peak lap time that he can do or anything like that. But because he was testing so much, so much all throughout, but it doesn't look enough. As it stands, it really does not look enough. Like you say, we'll we'll talk about Mark in more detail. We're, we're actually thinking that perhaps our next episode will focus very much on his situation going into this season and look back at his career a little bit as well as we're now 10 years since his MotoGP arrival. But just to touch on his mood briefly for now, he... He made very clear after Valencia that an awful lot was riding on what Honda did over the winter. And Honda turning up with four different bike specs suggests an awful lot of hard work. But Simon, at the outset in this Honda discussion, you said it, 
they look lost and it's hard to know how else to to judge a test in which you have four bike specs and you eliminate them all until you get back to the one that you didn't like three months ago. Yeah, um, you know, for comparison, KTM didn't look fantastic at this test because they were doing something similar, but they ended the test quite positive that they'd they'd found a lot of positive things that they just haven't put all together. Um, it didn't sound like that was the case at Honda. It didn't sound like they really found anything better than what they had. Um, and, and you know, the, the, the four different bikes that they had were four, like, four completely different bikes. Like, it's not that there was four identical bikes with different engines or different frames. Like, we were talking different frames, different aero, different engines, different swing arms. They were completely different. It's like they picked four different design philosophies and ended up back where they started. And I think from what Mark was saying, all of those four different bikes created more or less the same lap time in different ways was, was about <laughs> his impression. That lap time not being the lap time that Mark wants to see, if, if we read between the lines. Well, not between the lines. He, he said multiple times that they're far from the top. Far from the top, guys. That's, that's the words he used over and over again. So let's, let's take him in his word. They're, they're in a bit of trouble. One of the, the discussions over the weekend that kept coming up with various writers is, uh, we, we touched upon it in the site at the start of the weekend when Paul Espagaro touched about how much you have to use the rear brake now and the rear wheel to turn a MotoGP bike. And it seems like Honda haven't understood that. Um, you know, Espagaro complained about it. Uh, Rins was talking about how every time he goes into a corner, his back wheel's floating in the air, which is something that we expected 10 years ago, but not anymore. Um, and, and Alex Marquez said that it's one of the things that he's having to learn how to do differently because the Ducati just keeps two wheels in the ground as you go into a corner. And, and you know, that's where they make up all their time. Um, until Honda figure out a way to do that while still giving Mark Marquez their front end feeling, if that's even possible, um, or whether they have to just bite the bullet and go in a direction that he doesn't want. Um, you know, it kind of feels like at the minute they're trying to balance both and achieving nothing. We're used to to talking about Honda in reference to how Marquez is feeling. We've got some different reference points now. You mentioned Alex Rins just now. We've got two riders who've arrived from a lovely, sweet handling Suzuki onto this Honda. What was their vibe like this weekend? Joan sounded, I would say, he didn't sound super thrilled at the start, but I think he, his mood... And this is armchair psychology a little bit, but I think his mood improved throughout a little bit as he felt a gradual improvement and I think seemed to realize the fact that he is now in a place that has more resources than his, his previous employer. One of, one of the very interesting lines that he said was the difference is here I have more people listening to me. And not more people listening to me as if he was being ignored at Suzuki. It was, you know, more Literally staff, more, more people in the room. More, more money. Yeah, more people. Yeah. And... He knows, I think he realizes there's quite a long road ahead, but he's been clearly gradually making some progress. Again, we haven't seen what, what Mark is capable of at his peak. I still think there's probably quite a bit of lap time there between them. In Valencia, Mir had pace, but he didn't have the one lap speed. Or is it the other way around? In any case, he's putting, he's putting it together. It's different between Valencia and Sepang, and he's sort of putting the, the different pieces together and getting more and more competitive. From Rin's side, if, if you know, I know we're talking Mir, but just to, to mention Rin's, the, the interesting part that he mentioned today was that he ran a sprint race simulation at the same time as Luca Marini on track. And in his words, he was half a second off per lap and he felt that's pretty good. Yeah, still learning, still hasn't quite found his, his setup. 
all that kind of thing. Obviously, he will be closer, I think, come race weekend. I say obviously, I don't know that, but I want to I want to think that way. But man, half a second per lap to Luca Marini for however many Grand Prix winner Alex Rins at four or five at this point. I don't know. That's it's not great. Not fantastic. And it I don't think it's indicative of even so much the learning process is also the fact that the Honda's just not not there at the moment. Um, yeah, Mir, Mir is gelling with the bike um, like we kind of expected that he would because of the way that he rides. Um, and, you know, the, the concept of having four different machines that are actually different to test is you know, Suzuki didn't have four different machines to test in four seasons because they just didn't have the budget and the resources to put that sort of package together. Um, so he, he's definitely, he's loving being part of the Honda thing at the minute. And the fact that Honda have hired his old boss, Ken Koichi, to run it is slicing is in the cake because, you know, he's got a guy who understands how Mir thinks and, and what, you know, how to translate what he says, essentially. Um, it, it will be interesting to see how the Mir-Marquez dynamic plays out over this season because... I think if it starts to look like Mir is going to be competitive or could be competitive on a bike that's that's maybe designed a little bit differently, then, you know, that's not impossible. But in the OCR garage, uh, yeah, Rins, Rins kind of, I, th- I think he, it's fair to say he kind of plateaued a little bit this weekend. It didn't make any huge leaps forward. But, you know, it, it's worth noting, I had a quick Google Val whenever you said that about the, the 0.5 a second because um, I didn't think about it whenever he said it. But 0.5 a second over a 20-lap race is, is 10 seconds off. Yeah. And uh, Rins finished last year's Malaysian Grand Prix in fifth place, 11 seconds off the winner. So it, it's maybe not, you know, the disaster that it seems at a circuit like this that, that stretches things out. Mm, it's a long track, isn't it? So it's a little bit... It's a long yeah. track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... I don't know. We, I like you know. I like Luca Marini. I don't think he's going to be the winner. That's that's you know. <laughs> True. <laughs> let's let's compare him to Peak Peko Bagnai on the GP twenty three. Well, I don't think it's going to be ten seconds. It, it is worth noting that that's the only race of the year last year that he didn't finish. So we don't actually have him in the race as a benchmark. Um, and then on the other side of the OCR garage, uh, the most telling thing that we can really say is that the only rider that missed a media session all weekend was Takanakagami on the final day. Um, who just went home without talking to us because he's struggling really badly with with the injuries in the hand in the hand from Aragon last year that looks like a complete mess. His hand looks like swollen and inflamed and angry and yeah, it's just uh, riding at Mategi last year is going to go down as one of the stupidest decisions that a MotoGP rider has made in recent times. Ah, oh, bless Taka. You know, looking at his social media posts over the offseason, you can sort of tell that he was trying to hide the hand a little bit. Maybe it wasn't deliberate. Maybe that's just its natural position. But it wasn't really... You didn't see much of the of the hand that wasn't doing so well in, in those posts. Ah, it's just a... You know, we've, we've said our piece on that repeatedly. It's just a big shame. That's Yeah, that's what it is. Uh, for the benefit of listeners, uh, as soon as Simon started talking about the hand, all three of us on the video screen here just shook our heads a little bit sadly because it's just like, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. And then just just to add about Mir, which you know I I bungled in the beginning, it was the uh, the rhythm he didn't have in Valencia, and here the bigger issue was the one lap pace, which you know when it comes to both Mir and Honda, sort of like if. It's a little bit worrying because Mir's never really had that. One lap pace, not really his thing. Is he's going to be qualifying 
much lower than you would expect the average Honda rider, and that's just a complete disaster. So you, you can't afford to be, you know, to be qualifying, say, much worse than Paul last year, because Paul is a better qualifier than Mir. So I think there's going to be an, an interesting an interesting question there. It's very hard to read, isn't it? Because the uh, last few seasons, we've been used to things, well, I was going to say feeling disastrous in half the Repsol garage at this point, but actually that's not true because um, Paul Espargaro had these insanely optimistic pre-season testing and opening races, and then everything went horrible from, from then onwards. But I don't know, it feels from everything I've read and heard over the weekend, like Honda's in lots of trouble. Things aren't great for Mir, but they're not as... They're not as awful as it has been for the second Repsol rider for a while. And despite everything that's wrong, Repsol might have two more evenly matched riders at least than it's had since since before Pedrosa started kind of tailing off a bit towards the end of his career. Is that a fair assessment? That's my feeling. And that's, you know, it, I think a lot of it comes from mindset maybe. Jean's young. He's coming off a season that was just dire trash. Uh, <laughs> he knows he's got time on his side in, in this particular project. And I don't know, he just seems to have sat on it a little bit and ruminated and gotten about it. Um, it could be, like, it could be a false dawn. Uh, Paul's having another really good preseason that I'm, I'm really terrified will go badly again. He's, he's, again, over the moon, but he's, you know, he's brought up that fact that you can do a good lap time after three days of testing and it might not matter come, come the season. I hope that's not the case for Paul, and I hope it's not the case for, for Juan. I think Paul's a little bit terrified of that as well. He's, he's very much trying to be not too happy while also being very happy until he sees what happens in the race. <laughs> Should be, yeah. Yeah, understandable after the last few seasons. Should mention that we've, we've said quite a lot about Mir having time on his side. He's not that many years younger than Marquez, which surprised me when I looked it up for the column that I wrote on the site uh, earlier this week it's i think four years difference but, four years yeah but quite Jesus. a difference in MotoGP career length and number of injuries up to this point so i, I even though it's not that far apart in years there's definitely a, a trajectory difference in terms of the points they are uh, at their careers don't look up maverick vinales's age it's gonna oh you gotta tell me now I haven't, got, I haven't got that in my head how old is he oh no do you think i have it in my head but he's young oh that's <laughs> what i can tell you he's a lot younger than you would think i'm definitely not googling Maverick Vinales is age right now. Uh, he is 28. Huh. And he's just turned 28 a month ago. Uh, and he's been around for... Ever. The millennium, yeah. basically. Yeah. We, uh, we actually had quite a good conversation with uh, Paul Espigaro about his winter training. Um, because he's now having to train differently because he's one of the old men of the grid at 31. Oh, wow. Yeah, I can, I can, I can understand that. It's, it's, a, it's a grid that is getting... Younger and younger. How old was Stoner when he, Casey Stoner when he did his shock retirement? Was it something like 27? 27. I mean, that obviously seemed uh, and still is a huge shock. But it, yeah, it's 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 mad to think, even given that the early 30s MotoGP riders now considered the kind of geriatrics of the grid. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream Directv satellite free. Hey Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get Directv. What's the little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream Directv over the internet now. Oh sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, 
has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Let's move on to teams that we expect to be at the front of the field. And one of the biggest question marks going into the test was whether Yamaha would have found what it has been looking for for so long, which is improved engine performance. And at the start of the test, the vibe was very much that, yes, Yamaha has cracked this. It's it's doing well in the speed traps. Things look good. And then the test ended with a bit of a, a worrying question mark. So, Fel, run us through the state of play at Yamaha. Yeah, so let's let's not bury the lead. Um, on the final day of testing, uh, the two Yamaha riders were 19th and 20th <laughs> in, in the times. And you'd say, well, testing, that happens. But they both tried time attacks. They are genuinely behind some riders who did not have a chance to do a single lap push. I think, like, of the... So of the, of the eight Ducatis, seven were in the top nine. And the only one who wasn't was Johann Zarco, who was didn't get his single lap time attack in, and who was still ahead of the Yamahas. The Yamahas were a second off the pace over a single lap, and I mean, okay, they'll they they find some more time in race weekend conditions, but it's obvious from the two guys' debriefs that this was not expected at all, and it's it's super alarming. It is super alarming, especially because we're heading into the sprint season where qualifying will be a, a bigger share of your points haul. The top speed's there. Uh, it, like, it became obvious, I think, in the, in, the, in the shakedown already from what was coming out that the, you know, the top speed numbers were, were legit and they've been legit through the weekend and all the rider feedback was like, yeah, the engine's better. But obviously, when you gain that much, you compromise other stuff and you have to figure out how to undo that. Maybe that's what happened with a single lap. At least that's the punt I would take, but... Neither Franco Morbidelli nor Fabio Quartararo have any particularly good explanation for where the single lap pace is. And if they're if if they're getting stuck in Q1, then the top speed gains don't really matter. So this is this is really alarming. They've got to hope that the next few days of data analysis shows something pretty obvious that that's not working when it comes to one lap pace because. Um, you know, it, it is worth noting, caveating a little bit, that they did their fast laps at the end of the final day. Um, and, the, you know, there wasn't the sort of the overnight break to go away and crunch numbers and see what was different and come back and give it a fresh go. Um, I think if they'd known the reality, they'd probably have done uh, the time attack first thing this morning just to, to get it, you know, to have more time to try and correct it. Because uh, they did only do one each. Um, but, yeah, you know... the. the there is that worry that they don't know why it's happening. Um, it's very difficult to fix a problem you don't know. Yeah. Yeah, Gartar's feedback was, I do a lap and it feels good. It feels like a low 50, 58. Then I come into the box, I look at the time, 59 something. Uh, it's bad. It's not not good. And it's, it's you know, you, you'd obviously, sometimes you would consider pointing at the riders, but... Quartararo and pre-2021 Franco Morbidelli are two fantastic qualifiers. They're really good. Fabio and 
and you know Fabio was majestic over one lap from from basically minute one of his MotoGP career, and Franco was often giving him much more of a of a problem on Saturday than on on Sunday, weirdly enough. So Yamaha has been declining in qualifying, and I think we've all seen that as a byproduct of the growing top speed chasm. But it's it's it clearly wasn't just that, and. <laughs> Doesn't look doesn't look good if you can't do the lap time. I don't I don't know. I, I don't know how they find so much to wear because those two guys need to be fighting for pole position. Fabio certainly needs to be fighting for pole because they're not as all the top speed they found. It's not like they're going to be cutting through the field like a knife through butter. Still not more than Ducati. Do we have enough data on this Yamaha qualifying problem to? to know how how much of a, a serious one it is because i'm just thinking back to the valencia test where uh quartaro was saying what's going on with the engine all the progress has been lost and that turned out to be well, i guess it's turned out to be a settings problem or an error with this with the engine for that test they've come to sepang and, and it's fine did yamaha do a, enough qualifying running that we know they've got a real single lap problem or could this have been something was wrong for the limited amount they did they come back at portimao and it's it's probably okay they didn't. They didn't do enough qualifying simulation running, I think, to be certain, because nobody did. But they honestly, they were never very high in the timing screens at basically any point in the test, apart from maybe like a couple of moments early-ish in days, maybe in day two, maybe in day one. I don't remember for sure. So it's, I don't know, There's they didn't, they didn't sound like it wasn't, wasn't something to, to fix. Morbidelli sounded a bit more confident than Quartararo that it'll that it'll be addressed, but honestly, Frankie probably feels feels pretty good to be close to Fabio in terms of pace again, which was the case. It's it you know I I'm concerned. I would describe this as as concerning. Yes, you mentioned Franco Morbidelli there. So was he generally optimistic from this test? Because that is something that an awful lot of uh, fans have wanted to see and Yamaha has been desperate to see, you know, even if both bikes are in trouble in some way, at least if they're on the same sort of pace, that's that's helping things out a bit in terms of trying to recover. But yeah, was Morbidelli actually back in business, do you think? He was closer. Um, I don't think he was back to, you know, 2020 championship contender, Frank Morbidelli, but he was closer, um, which has to be the best thing that Quattararo and the rest of the team can hope for because with only two bikes in the grid, they need more fast data. Um, you know, it, it's it's probably a good thing for Quattararo that Morbidelli was just behind him whenever they did do a time attack. You know, they were they were only separated by, uh, you know, by a few sort of tenths of a second in the end. But it's hard to tell. Um, we spent the end of last season getting too excited about Franco Morbidelli falls stones on multiple occasions, only for him never to actually put it together in a race day. And I think it's going to be Portugal and, and the opening race before we really get a feel for, you know, whether or not there has been significant progress in whatever it is that, that you know, that, that just hasn't worked for him. Um, he talked a lot over the weekend about the DNA of the bike changing and how that subsequently means he has needed to change the DNA of his riding style. Um, it's obvious that he's still fast on a motorbike because just before everyone came to here, uh, he went to Portimao with the you know a bunch of the VR46 Academy guys, and he was faster than Peko Bagnaya on a superbike around Portimao. So the speed is there, um, but it it you know until we get a race to put it all together, let's cross fingers and see. 
And of course, any gains that Yamaha have made over the winter are, are, are going to be put into context by what Ducati's been up to. And uh, Val, earlier you described watching a, a video interview with Banyar and you said you felt that no human being had ever smiled that much, pretty much. And he also, earlier in the test, mentioned Ducati having found more top speed with absolutely no negative consequences for any other part of the bike's performance, for instance, handling, cornering. So that's that's kind of terrifyingly ominous for everybody else, isn't it? Ducati's found even more of what it was already really good at, and its champion rider is even happier. Yeah, I, mean, the, the, I, I don't think the top speed gain is massive, but it's just like, I think the biggest problem for the rivals is that Ducati didn't mess it up. Like in, 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 in progress, like the bike was already spectacular at the end of last year. So if it's just made incremental progress, that's already, I would argue, too much progress for its rivals. Um, yeah, I can only, I don't see the, the data beyond the, the lap times, which the lap, I think Peko pointed out that he, he did his fastest ever lap of Sepang in this test. Uh, and that he thinks now that the GP23 is already at the level of GP22 with plenty more to grow, which is, it is quite scary. I think the big thing that happened is he was having some sort of question mark doubt with the the power delivery on the bike, the the uh, the acceleration phase. And they did something in the final hour of the test that really addressed that. And so that's probably, that explains his absolutely monumental grin in showing up to that interview. Genuinely trying to think, it might be the happiest MotoGP rider interview I've ever seen. Wow. And that includes like maybe some championship <laughs> interviews in it too, but definitely the happiest from testing. I uh, didn't really, didn't do much of a poker face at all. Clearly that fear that he will have had from 2022 of having a difficult preseason that puts you on the back foot, that's not really come to pass. And I don't think he expects it to come to pass in Portimao, although they, they will need to, to check. He's got the engine that an engine that he likes. He's, I think, figured out his arrow, his preferred arrow, and I think it's the the new one that they brought, I believe. Whereas somebody like Jorge Martin is going to use something that's closer to to twenty two. Like it is a bit ominous. What's also ominous is he's more comfortable than in Bastianini right now. Although even Bastianini ended the test on a on a pretty good note, but. You know, chances are that Peko with the might of the factory is again going to be the best of the Ducatis and Ducati is again out of reach. So uh, I'm fickle, but this this test actually did change a little bit my priors in terms of the in terms of the favorite for for 2023. I'll say I'll say that much. I mean, everyone else is worried about Ducati. Um, the the other riders in the grid are basically saying that this year's championship is between Mark Marquez, Fabio Quartararo and Ducatis. Uh, which is deeply, deeply disturbing if you're uh, not one of those riders, basically. Um, you know, they, they put seven riders in the top nine of testing. All of their riders look fast. Uh, Alex Marquez was faster than his brother, Mark. Um, he said that he hopes the keys to the house still open the door when he gets home and that Mark hasn't had the locks changed for that. Um I should just add at this point, I love the fact that they share a house at this point in their lives and careers. That is just so endearing. Um, yeah, they, you know, the, the Ducati bandwagon rolls on. They could not be in a better place right now. And there's part of me that, that thinks that Paco Bagnaia's biggest problem this year will be other Ducatis. Um, the, the, you know, there's, there's other people who are going to get in his way this year, for better or worse. Um, 
and and that's going to be the thing he has to guard against. Well, let's talk about those other Ducatis then. Certainly at the start of the test, Ennio Bastianini was conspicuously not as happy, not as comfortable as Bagnaia. Now, of course, there was a lot of talk last season about how some of Bastianini's heroics were helped by the fact that he was on a proven package, that everything was familiar for him. He just picked up where he left off and started winning a bunch of races, whereas now he has got a step onto a full factory, top-range Ducati. I... I had enough faith in Bastianini that I didn't think it would that would actually destabilize him. I was thinking actually he's just going to prove that those crit- remaining critics wrong, get on that bike and be just as fast as Bagnaia, if not faster. But yeah, so given that, I was a little surprised by his tone at the start of the test, at least. But Val, what was your take on on Bastianini's weekend? Yeah, so there's a I think there's a widespread acknowledgement from Bastianini, but also from Ducati Top Brass that this bike may be doesn't fit his style quite as well as the GP21 he had. So he can't he can't accelerate maybe as fast or he did something with that. He can't enter the corners as fast as he as he likes to, has to be a little more a little more slow slow coming in. And the, the lean angle I think isn't right is the way he put it. Um they did some improvement over the test. There's also the factor that this was, we'd have to say his first proper test as a factory MotoGP rider, which is a big difference. Last year he had a bike that was ready and waiting for him and he could just ride and ride and ride it. And he, he topped the corresponding test last year. He was his quickest in Sepang. Uh, and this year he's having to do a whole bunch of development running, which, you know, that's gonna, it's guaranteed to scramble your brain a little bit. He still ended the test with a single lap effort, not that far off what, you know, what Peko managed. So he's probably gonna be okay, I think. Did not start off on as good as foot as as Banyaya, but certainly no like no disaster, no huge alarm blaring. I don't think. Yeah, I mean, I think he he learned a lesson about the realities of being a factory rider, um, and that it, it's not just jumping the bike and go fast. I remember at this test last year when he was fast, um, Peko Banyaya sort of backhandedly saying that well, all he's done is put tires and fuel on the bike this week. And he, that hasn't been the case this weekend. Um, you know, the bike has been really good, but it's not been perfect. Um, the new engine is faster, but the result of that is that there's been a bit of an issue with the throttle connection, being a bit aggressive that they've had to work on, which obviously was last year's big problem, but this year seems to be a lot smaller of an issue. Um, but it, it also seems to have affected Bastianini more than it affected Bagnaia this weekend. So, yeah, he's he's comfortable. He's just had lots of work to do. And he, you know, he's bypassed that experience of last year, obviously, because he went from yeah. the 21 to the 23. So, if, you know, they've made the, even sort of Banyaya agrees that they've made the 23 a bit more aggressive and a bit more of a handful than it was. It's also probably impacting Bastinini a bit. So, yeah, I, not alarming. I, I don't think it's alarming. It's going to be up there. I guess, the, like, the only alarming bit for him is how good all the other Ducatis look. So let's let's look at the Ducati satellite pack then. Obviously, the the one a lot of eyes on will be Jorge Martin, given that there was a very strong case for him being on the bike. Bastianini is now on until Bastianini started winning a bundle of races on an old bike, and Martin started barreling through the gravel face first more weekends than not. But how how was Martin's test? How is he now looking going into the season? That was really good. I mean, again, the headline thing is that he crashed and he you know, got a big abrasion on his hand that nearly compromised his final day, which is it is very Jorge Martin. I will I will admit as much, but he's 
Scott bundles of pace. He's much happier with the package that he has. He says he found a base setup with the new bike already, whereas last year it took him basically until mid-season. And I think he's he's generally committed to the to the feeling that the GB22 he has, which you will remember, was not the same engine as Pekka Banya and Jack Miller had. So it was the, like the latest development that uh, Banyaya ultimately rejected. And I think Martin has now committed to the thinking that that just wasn't that good and that what he has right now is a is a the, the gb23 is a significant step forward he is really really happy with it he's been talking it up quite a lot i think he goes into the season quietly very very confident and i am i would say i am confident for him yes even though he will crash on occasions jorge martin what can he do uh the i think the speed is clearly there and even you know even his his teammate uh, Johannes Zarco acknowledged in one of the sessions with the media that for Zarco there's still a bit of work to do, but Martin's ready to fight for the podium right now. That Martin would be good if the race was the following day. I mean, Martin has been capable of sticking it on pole with a bike far off the absolute best so far, and regardless of how little experience he had at the start of his career in MotoGP, he's just had that enormous raw pace, like, like we've said many times just get to the finish a few more races and then we can we well we're not that important in this but other other factory teams who might employ you if ducati isn't going to give your works team space can take that prospect a lot more seriously but yeah it's interesting to hear how buoyant he sounds so grassini started last season doing the winning alex marquez is now grassini's best hope sounds like he's pretty perky as well both the Grassini riders are, are pretty upbeat it actually goes far as to say that fabio di giantoni was maybe even happier than Alex Marquez, even though Marquez is a, a little bit faster. Um, Marquez is adapting really quickly to the Ducati. We know it's a bike that is you know, rode in a very different way, like we said earlier in the pod. Um, but he's he's getting there rapidly. Um, you know, he's he's not wasting any time uh, coming to grips with that thing. Um, which is, you know, we've always known that Alex Marquez is more talented than the Honda allowed him to show. And he, he conceded as much tonight as well, kind of, that, you know, this is a really, really important opportunity for him to do something a lot better than he's done before on a bike that was trying to kill him on every lap. Um, on the other side of the garage, Fabio Di Gentonio was a new crew chief in the form of former Juan Mir crew chief, Alex Car- or Frankie Carchetti. Um, We know that Frankie is a, a incredibly talented guy. Um, and and DJ has just been beaming about working with him this weekend. Um, he says that you know they they just everything they do in the garage is done differently now, um, and it very much sounds like he's gone from having a crew chief who was also a rookie last season who'd never worked in MotoGP before to having a crew chief who knows how to win a world championship. You know that that's that the long and short of what he's saying. He's, he's one of two riders in the test that have looked good and are very keen to make their 2022 debut season sound like a complete wash that basically didn't count. The other rider being Raul Fernandez at RNF Aprilia. Both of them, honestly, very, very similar rhetoric. Except whereas the Gian Antonio, I think, is pointing towards the sort of the, the shortcomings in terms of crew experience. And for Fernandez, it's obviously the fact that he did not want to be at KTM. I owe DJ, I owe DJ a brief apology. They were actually the other way around in the standards. Yeah. In the combined standards. I didn't quite realize that. Yeah, he was he was fractionally faster than Alex Marquez. 
is the is the more likely Marquez to win a race this season, Alex, as it stands? Uh, no, 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 no. Um, uh, uh, Cota's still on the calendar, yeah. so no. Saxon <laughs> Ring's still on the calendar. So. Well, we go to Cota and Saxon Yeah, no. yeah. And uh, honestly, like, Honda's not that bad. That bad. Even if it's half a second a lap off, there are tracks where Mark Marquez alone can conjure up half a second out of thin air, basically, I think. I'm, I'm not even, I don't think I'm even being, like, exaggerating or being hyperbolic. I think, I think that's true. Um, I don't think Grissini is going to win races this year. I, I don't think so. I think the four-win best in the season, season was a bit of an aberration. I like both Alex Marquez and Fabio Di Giannantonio quite a lot, but I just I don't see it. Not like they've had a good test, but there there are too many Ducatis who I think are just a little bit better. So if if a year-old Ducati wins a race, I think it's going to be the VR46. I think of Marco Bezzecchi. But I, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> the 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 path that I see uh, Grissini win this year is in the wet. Uh, yeah, yeah. Alex Marquez yes. in the wet on a Ducati is a potential race winner. Yeah, see, see weirdly, yeah. those like don't even count in my head, even though they're you know twenty five points in a trophy. <laughs> I don't have to be mean about it, but yeah. Also, sorry, Miguel Oliveira. <laughs> the fail thinks most of your success doesn't doesn't matter. Let's let's not forget. Um, because we all forget it all the time, but there is in fact double the opportunity to win oh, races. Those this year. definitely don't count. I'm not <laughs> so winning one out of twenty-one races is a slim odds, but winning one out of forty-two, do we count them as race wins? I I would not. I mean, did you, uh, even in the middle of his twenty twenty-two, uh, completely wasted year, as I think he's trying to indicate, he did stick it on pole once. Yeah. So in that same regard, I think they could win a sprint race. Yeah, I think that's possible, but. This is a very good point. We had a lot of interesting pole sitters, a lot of interesting front row qualifiers last year. Now, a lot of those actually could not keep it near the front for the duration of a sprint race. They they fell down the order much quicker than that. But it does raise that question of whether some of these qualifying anomalies might actually translate into something that is it is literally going to be a race win in absolute literal. A race will have happened. That rider will have won that race terms. I see what you mean. It's not a Grand Prix win. It shouldn't be given the same level as a Grand Prix win. But... Yeah, interesting. My optimistic kind of projection that Alex might be the Marcus brother winning was kind of based on the fact that I know Grassini had a lot of circumstances go its way in some ways last year, but it was it was winning with Bastianini deep into the season still. It wasn't like it was all when the other bikes weren't sorted at the start of the year. There were, you know, it was, he was still a threat almost right to the end. Well, actually, yeah, right to the end. Now, caveat that, I don't think Marquez is in Bastianini's class. Alex Marquez, this is. So that is uh, that is a step backwards for Grassini, although not exactly a terrible one. You know, Marquez is a, is a world champion at lower levels. Um, you mentioned uh, VR46, so let's finish our Ducati chat by looking at uh, Valentino Rossi's team now. Uh, it sounded like there was some quite good things coming out of both sides of the garage for VR46 through the test. Yeah. Yeah, there were. There's just not much to say in the sense that they didn't. I don't think they they had to try much of anything new. Really, they just had to, you know, adapt to certain new rule vagaries like the sprint race and the the tire pressure thing. That's going to be a whole thing clearly in the lead up to to Portimao in the season opener. But more on that later. Obviously, um, they both looked fast. They both got uh, good race ready bikes that they just get to put mileage on. Uh, Bezeki crashed at one point and briefly limped but then wasn't limping and was fast again so everything was fine there and they're both towards the the sharp ends marini's sprint race the one that was half a second up on alex Rins, does sound really good 
Um, and like before the test started, Luca Marini was sort of talking down the possibility of pulling uh, a Bastianini this year because he said that the GP23 is is too close to the GP22 to really take advantage of that early part of the season where your package is more refined, more established. I think his tone maybe changed a little bit because when you when you top two preseason tests instead of one, and remember, Luca Marini also topped Valencia, so now Sepang and Valencia, it probably gives you an extra an extra bit of confidence. Even though Luca Marini also then let slip that Pecco has told him that the GP23 has made a massive step forward and is basically already there. Uh, so yeah, Pecco is not playing poker at all this 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 preseason. And the, the VR46 pair are probably the guys who performed the closest to my expectations at this test um, in that, you know, pretty much expected them to do loads and loads of running on a bike that they, they, you know, didn't have a lot of work to do on and be fast at the end. Um, Marini is probably the guy that I think is, uh, you know, he's, he's one of those guys that will win sprint races this year because he qualifies well and he's been at the front of races and then dropped back a little bit, not quite kept it all together. Um, the sprint races will suit him. Bezeki, uh, you know, we we spoke to Marini about the whole doing a Bastianini thing, and he was, you know, like Val said, a little bit, mm, maybe, maybe not. Bikes are quite close. We spoke to Bezeki about it, and he was like, "I'm here to win." Um, so I'm I'm pretty confident that they will start the season strong. Um, whether or not they can maintain it, I'm not sure, but yeah, they, they'll they'll do well early on, as we expected. Think the exact Bezeki words or something like I don't care if it's a GP twenty two, twenty four, twenty six in front of me, don't care. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. And I, look, I I I like Luca, but I probably fancy Marco's chances more of winning something this season. But yeah, you know, it's it's good for MotoGP that they're both fast because they're both very enjoyable listens and characters, very much so. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at Grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. So we've talked about most of last year's front runners, but not last year's fairy tale front runner, Aprilia. And last week in the podcast, we we were discussing what we're going to find out about Aprilia. Was twenty twenty two as good as this storyline got? Was it just that team taking advantage of bigger names having weird trajectories last season, or is Aprilia now a title contender? Val, has this week told us much more about where Aprilia stands going into twenty twenty three? You're nodding. That's good. I think it. I think it has. 
I think they look really good. Um, I don't think they look championship good, but I think it is absolutely wild how Aprilia's tone has changed where they want to look championship good. Uh, everyone has taken note of how the Aprilia's were the only ones mixing with the, with the Ducatis at the top. You know, the top nine is seven Ducatis, two Aprilia's, and the two Aprilia's are not eighth and ninth, they're third and sixth, and they're they're pretty close. Um, but Aleish wasn't thrilled with the test because he, I think his line was more or less like every bit is impre- improved a little bit. So it's an, it's an improvement basically around the block, but that might not be enough to stop the Ducati juggernaut and to really, to really be even a problem for him, which I just, it's crazy because think to Aprilia like five years back and like, oh, we have the second best bike on the grid. Well, that's a shame. That's not good. Impossible. Absolutely impossible. But it it genuinely does look like the the second best bike again right now. Um, But yeah, Alesh was reasonably happy beyond that. And he, you know, he's expecting the actual 2023 engine spec for Aprilia to come in Portimao rather than in Sepang. So, which is sort of, that's a bit of a familiar Aprilia thing where they don't quite have the developments as on time as, as everybody else. But they're good developments. It's a it's a good bike. Um, Aleish reasonably happy. Maverick's super happy. Maverick's being super happy. Maverick again. Well, it's it's, it's winter testing, isn't it? Though it is winter testing. Yes, <laughs> this is his, his chosen specialized subject. Yes, it is. He says, you know, he says the bike feels natural. And he said something I think that is really interesting and notable. He said that something's changed to where he now can control the spin better in races, which means that the tire fall-off should improve. Because remember, some of the best Maverick moments in Yamaha, basically the, the best moments of his dark patches in Yamaha was him coming on strongly in second half in the second half of the race. And last year, he couldn't really pull that off in the two races where it counted the most. Silverstone and Assen, who was in the victory mix, couldn't quite get it done the second half. And he expects that to change this season. And that's a, honestly, that's a serious weapon. Because... Uh, the rest of the of the package, I think, is there. Um, and again, he looks okay over a single lap. I think he's figured out. He says the bike feels more natural now, which is very important because obviously the whole tra- transition from the inline four to the V four that he's been going through. When like when Simon referenced earlier about you know the title contenders being the eight Ducatis and Fabio and Mark to some people, it, it is shocking. But my first thought was like. I think folks are are sleeping on Maverick. <laughs> I I don't think he's going to win the title, but I think he's going to be good. I mean, I I I think both of them can still pull off a surprise. Both sides of the Aprilia garage. Um, I I genuinely felt like the only thing that was keeping them from being super super happy with the work that they had done over winter was the work that Ducati had done, and the fact that their rival, their big rival, um realistically i think who they see as their only real rival uh also got faster um but it's it's quite interesting listening to the mood in that box it's really interesting listening to alish talking about the addition of two extra bikes and the data that they're gathering um you know he went out in the second day of the test uh he crashed it rained he didn't get a chance to do a fast lap time but he was able to go and look at Miguel Oliveira's data because he was faster than him in the last sector. And that's not something that they've ever really had before. 
Um, on top of that, Raul Fernandez just looks super fast. Um, he's fast and he's happy, which <laughs> he made a lot of references over the course of the weekend to, I'm enjoying riding a bike for the first time since 2021, which says an awful lot about the joys of being a KTM satellite rider. Ouch. He's yes. not the first person to have made that sort of comment over the years coming from, uh, from there. But all in all, it seems like the 23 bike is better. The two extra 22 bikes in the grid will provide them with something that was missing last year in the form of extra data. And I agree completely with Val. Um, I think for rivals to be ruling them out as title contenders is a bit daft. And and I, I should say, regarding the RNF thing, I'm just going to pat myself on the back and mention that I, as an as a important point for Aprilia coming into the test, I said it was going to be really important to establish quickly a very close relationship with RNF. And from everything that the RNF guys have been saying, it, it sounds like the factory has been paying a lot of attention to that side, that they've been you know present there all the time, been really paying a lot of attention and supporting to the two riders. Even if it's a slightly different bike, obviously it's gonna be the 22. I don't know, I don't know that it's that different. Doesn't sound that different. The riders are a bit split on that. Like Alesha has already been looking at what Miguel's doing, whereas Maverick is sort of like, it's a different bike, so I'm not gonna look at that data. Uh, that's time will will show which one of them is, is correct in their approach. Uh, although I think Maverick's mind will, will change at some point. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a good test, and it's you know it's a, it's it's a very important asset to have that you know that extra two bikes, and it is very nice to see like Raul Fernandez isn't entirely there yet in terms of speed, but it's really nice to see that twenty twenty one was not just a collective hallucination we all had. <laughs> From your description, he now sounds like Raul Fernandez again, which is very welcome. The guy who put together one of the greatest Moto two seasons in the history of the category is apparently quite good. Thankfully, like we, we sometimes know what we're talking about. Thank God. Yeah, I, I am very excited for what Aprilia does this season. I'm, I'm, I feel excited for a long time Aprilia employees still who, who were there through all the embarrassing times and now like, we're a championship contender. We've got the second best bike on the grid. This is this is real. Um, for all that, I still fully expect in quite a few races this year to go, hang on, where's Maverick Vinales? Scroll down, scroll down, scroll down. Oh, there's Maverick Vinales. Why? Why has that happened? Um, but yeah, I also expect him to potentially win a race or two. So yeah, the, the usual Vinales story. Let me put it that way. I think in the race to become the first ever rider to win three uh, races on different bikes in the MotoGP era, I think Vinales is going to beat Jack Miller in that race. And that was a beautifully smooth segue into talking about how Jack Miller is getting on at KTM, Val. So go on, you take the lead on that. How How is KTM? Uh, KTM's, I mean, I... <sighs> This is tough because I, I I don't know. Like even more than with the other stuff, I really feel like I don't know. Uh, they sound positive, especially Paul, but also reasonably, you know, Brad Bender sounds reasonably positive. Jackson, his whole learning curve right now, had a, had a crash today, I think isn't quite fully at one with the bike just yet, but not, not in Johan Zarco disaster territory when it comes to, to KTM debuts. I don't know because I've seen this movie before. I've seen a KTM preseason where they're lower down in the timesheets and the insistence is that everything's fine and then we show up to the first race weekend and they're still there. But I I that's not that's not enough evidence to suggest that they're any sort of in any sort of real trouble. 
I think they're okay. Just depends on whether okay is good enough. And also, because of how positive Paul has sounded, I am now legitimately curious if Paul is going to launch an outside bid to be the top KTM guy. I, I'm interested to see if that's if that's at all possible. Or I should say, there's been a funny running joke throughout uh, Paul debriefs. Not the top KTM guy, the top peer mobility group guy. <laughs> yeah, like he keeps saying it's the KTM and then sort of self-correcting because he's yeah, he rides a gas gas branded bike now. So now journalists uh, are making fun of him and asking questions about the the peer mobility group engine and the peer mobility group riders and all that. It's, it's quite good. I mean, it's it's worth noting that they've been making a big deal about how they are two factory teams run by the same factory or by the you know by the same manufacturer that this is not even the KTM of a few years ago where it was a satellite and a and a factory team the the promotion to whatever you want to call it status that it has with becoming gas gas um you know Paul was very very clear on the first day of testing that that they are two factories um and with that is coming factory resources um so if he were to outperform the factory riders at the end of the season, I'm not entirely sure that the pure mobility group would be too upset by that. I mean, I would be because Paul's older than Brad Bender. So that's, that, that would be my concern, <laughs> honestly. Uh, I, still, I still think Brad will, will spearhead that particular project. But I think I do now expect Paul to be fairly consistently second while Jack Miller learns the ropes. And, you know, since we've mentioned every single rider in the grid, let's give a shout out to, uh, uh, you know, KTM's Rookie of the Year, Augusto Fernandez, who did... <laughs> gas yeah, Gas's Rookie of the Year. It. You are correct. Pure gas Mobility gas. Group's Rookie of the Year. <laughs> Pure yeah. Mobility Group's Rookie of the Year, Augusto Fernandez, who um, did the shakedown, the full three days, now did the full three days of testing, was reasonably on the pace, I guess, didn't get to the final uh, push lap, so towards the bottom but he don't really know what the peak lap time he's capable of uh sounds like he's you know he's on his way he's learning he's taking it gradually uh best of luck to him i hope it works out because i think there's going to be pressure from the from the moto 2 guys very soon yeah i mean the 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 good plan for him from here is to go home and basically spend uh spend the next month studying he was going home with all of his data and all of the other KTM riders' data to look over, and you know he, he's an intelligent guy. Um, there's there's almost shades of Luca Marini about him and how he goes about his business. And I'd be surprised if he doesn't come to Portimao for the next test, having spent the last month sort of fundamentally working on his riding style and improving the bits that he has identified that he needs to improve and be a little bit closer to the front. He's, a, he's an intelligent guy. He's you know, working closely on the data. He's working with uh, Mika Calio, the KTM test rider, who I think is more or less slowly but surely transitioning into like a rider coach type role, I think, within KTM. That's sort of what it feels like right now. Because he's, you know, he's 40 already. I think his test rider days are probably coming to an end fairly soon. Uh, yeah, yeah, Mika Calio is a great person to have, have by your side. Uh, yeah, I agree with the Luca Marini comparison. I also should say that Augusto's English is spectacular, and every time I hear him speak, I am honestly I am floored by you know 
the fact that the person has had time to become a MotoGP rider while also being this this comfortable in a second language. <laughs> the accident is really good. It's really, really impressive. Like at, at, at a certain point, I was wondering if he like lived in America or something. It's really, really cool. And it helps that he, he does say a lot. He's very, he's not a boring guy. He's clearly interested in, in talking about MotoGP and interested in, in talking with the media. And, that's why when I say best of luck to him, it's not it's not sarcasm. Yeah, I don't particularly want Augusto Fernandez to be a one and done in MotoGP. I think he's he's a good rider to have with a lot of talent. I'm just I'm terrified of those other uh, pure mobility group guys that are coming up: Pedro Costa and Isan Guevara, and the others of which there are fifteen hundred. So. <laughs> and we know that KTM is brutal when it comes to getting rid of someone for being slightly not good enough whenever there's someone in the works that they think may be slightly faster, as Remy Gardner found out. No, KTM's brutal, but maybe Gas Gas is super nice and fuzzy. That's that's very true. Gas Gas is different. This is, this is not the same. Gas Gas hands out lifetime contracts. In <laughs> <laughs> and on that note, we've gone through the entire field, which I didn't actually expect to. We've done well in an hour, so we should stop talking at this point. Um, thank you very much for your company, listeners. Simon, you are now heading off on your honeymoon. Although when, when you said you and Maddie were going to Lombok, I assume your honeymoon is just sitting in the Mandalika paddock, just being angry about Dorna for a fortnight <laughs> while occasionally writing something for us. We might swing by and see how the resurfacing has gone. <laughs> oh, yeah, the surface. That's, oh, yeah. That's yeah, yeah. That's changed minor. again since the last yeah. time we were there. Oh, yeah. I, I yeah. couldn't see us publishing one or two things about that in that case and val you can now move the rest of your possessions into your into your new flat including the well no the pink kettle's gone so the pink kettle's gone for the benefit of listeners when we switched on the video call for this chat val's ceiling was just in this sort of bizarre disco pattern in in his new kitchen which um i was impressed by yeah you're really you're really properly making sound like a tricked out one percenter <laughs> who has you know just can casually invest into a new flat, you know, those sports journalists buying up property all over the world. It's a <laughs> rental. I didn't install those light fixtures, but I am going to make use of them. More updates on Val's Kitchen and Simon's Honeymoon and uh, my children's nap times and lots more on MotoGP preseason in a week's time. Um, obviously, check the-race.com for all our other analysis of what's gone on in the test so far. If you follow other parts of motorsport, we're just going to be drowning you in Formula One podcasts and videos across the next week as Formula One launch season completes. We'll see you back here on the Race MotoGP podcast in seven days from now. Thank you. The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager.